0: you, Wendy, and it's interesting that that David gets this message of of peace and comfort, and yet, uh, and, uh, and that God is going to continually and consistently be with him, and then he endures like a long period of time where he is wandering in the wilderness as an outlaw. And it's interesting for us as we go through the book of Esther that this is sort of where we are today, we're in the second chapter of the book of Esther and just to recap uh, where we were last time where we ended off is that is that the king uh, in his uh, quote unquote wisdom has has decided to uh, uh, and on advice from others has decided to have a law that his current queen Vashti is no longer allowed to be in his presence and that uh, and then uh, so then there is, and this is uh, going to create uh, respect for men in households because that is uh, going to work um, so we're we're in this idea, and so and I want us to I want to be really clear with you as we go into the next chapter that the next chapter is is creepy and bad, and it's intended to be creepy and bad and 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 we're not doing the story a favor by trying to make it less creepy and bad. I've talked. Uh, I've heard a lot of pastors talk about this, and, and, they, and they 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 try and clean it up, and they try and make it appear as if it's better than it uh, than it actually is, and they they try and diminish how its level of creepiness because they're uncomfortable with it. But but we don't do a favor to the story by that. It's one of my great frustrations with with. Bible teaching is we want to have these boulderized versions or these sanitized versions of our stories because that's what makes us feel more comfortable. But the Bible's intention is not to make us comfortable, the Bible's intention is to tell a story, and this story gets creepy and bad before it gets good. So, what the Bible has made dangerous, let no one make safe. So, we're going to jump in and uh, chapter two, verses one. So, later. When King Xerxes' fury is subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he, she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now, this is interesting because this remembered word in Hebrew is really kind of a double has a double meaning in this. In that in that it implies remembered in the sense that he woke up and was like, "Oh man, what happened last night? Oh no, I banned my queen from ever entering into my presence." Like that's part of what we're talking about when we say remembering, but it also implies that like he said like, once his, once his fury d- d- left, he was like, oh, I'm sad now. That was a bad decision to make while I was drunk. And, yeah, it was. So, but, but he's sad because he made a really dumb decision. Uh, and then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm and bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, gross, and he followed it. Now, if this sounds creepy... It's because it is. It's really creepy. And let's be honest about this. All beauty pageants are inherently creepy. Like, there's... The fact that the Miss America pageant is the largest provider of scholarships to women in the United States is really kind of gross. Like, we should... That's a... Uh, but um, but maybe beauty pageants were always creepy. You know? Like, I'm shocked that we didn't notice this when we were reading this passage. And maybe... You, as an aside, we should be wary of rich and powerful men who are into beauty pageants. But um, so this is, but this is gross, right? This is a gross suggestion, and he's a gross person for following it because this is not about beauty. This is about possession. This is about ownership. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And so into this weird, creepy situation, now we're introduced to our characters. Uh, There was a uh, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So just to establish where we are in the story, there was an exile in Israel. Nebuchadnezzar came, took over everything, and then they exiled a bunch of people out of Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, and took the best and the brightest, in theory— uh, and and sent them to work in various government positions in the empire. Okay, so that's so um, that that happened. That's like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's that generation. This is the generation following them. Okay, so this is this is Kish would have been a contemporary of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and, and Mordecai is the next generation. So they're still living in, in exile. So Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Uh, also continuing the fairy tale tradition of, of heroes not having parents living. Like, that just seems to be... I don't know why. It's a Disney princess thing. It's very, very old. Um, this young woman who is known... No one who is a hero has ever had living parents. Sorry. Um, this young woman who was also known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So... Um... This is interesting. So there's this statement that that is translated to English as she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Um, the 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 Hebrew is actually a little bit uh, a, a little bit more potentially crass than that in the literal Hebrew because the literal Hebrew is that she was beautiful of face and shape. And I think that this is an interesting conversation to have about beauty. Um, and I want to have a little bit of an aside to this because I think this is an important thing for us to tr- grasp our head, wrap our, try and at least have a discussion about, and, uh, and I think it's uh, this is one of the best places in Scripture to kind of guide us because beauty, specifically feminine beauty, in cultures for really as long as humans have existed, it seems that we've either exalted feminine beauty or we've demonized feminine beauty. That it's either one of the other. It's either something to be worshipped or it's something to be possessed and destroyed. And the reality is both of those approaches to feminine beauty are methods of control. That that we either want women to cover everything about them up as a method of controlling them because, because their beauty is too dangerous to be seen by the world, right? And we see that at its most extreme where in, in cultures where women wear the burqa. But we also see that in a lot of traditional evangelical cultures as well. Like, I went, to a, I went to a Bible college that had rules about how long t-shirts had to be, right? So we're still, in some ways, we say, like, well, we're not doing a burqa thing. That's just for good taste. Well... It's sort of the same principle. You're putting the pressure on, you're saying that this beauty that women have is too dangerous to be seen by these by these uncontrollable beasts that are known as like men and young boys therefore the onus is on them to cover up that beauty it's a method of control on the other side when when we've taken female beauty and exalted it it's a way of possessing it where 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 everything becomes condensed to what what men view and what men want and impressing us and and doing stuff for us and therefore that's the other way of doing it and 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 then value is is Based not on humanity, but on physical appearance. And I and and so what this has led some of us to do is to either want to completely ignore physical beauty in other human beings or, or just not talk about it. And I want us to somehow get to the point where we as human beings, by God, have been designed to appreciate beauty. It's okay to recognize when another human being is beautiful of face and shape. That's an okay thing to do. Where that gets twisted is when we see beauty and now need to possess that beauty. That rather than allowing that beauty to exist in the world and and being enriched by it and honored by it, where we see that we see that beauty and see it as a thing that needs to be ours, and if it is not ours, then it needs to be destroyed. And I think that that is what we are seeing in this moment. That 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 this is not about beauty in this in this moment for for uh, Xerxes. This is about possession. This is about ownership. But the fact that that Xerxes' love for beauty and all of our love for beauty has been twisted and broken does not mean that beauty in itself is wrong or that we ought to ignore that. It's okay to be beautiful of face and shape. It's okay to aspire to want to, to be To look good. It's okay to appreciate that in other people and to notice that other human beings are beautiful of face and shape. But what becomes dangerous is when we decide that that is a thing that we need to possess and own. It is not ours. We can appreciate the beauty of another human being, but we need to recognize that that beauty is not ours. We see this multiple times in the Bible in scripture with uh david's son uh amnon who who's whose desire for his for his his cousin his stepsister made him sick to the point of uh a, a, a physical illness and then he 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 raped her and then and then the Bible says that his his hatred for her became as strong as his love for her was when The desire to possess comes into our desire for beauty. That's when we get destroyed. This isn't an appreciation of beauty. It's an act of control. And that's what we see here, and it's why it makes it creepy. So when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. And this is the place where I've seen people try to make this less creepy, where they've said that, like, oh, God blessed her, and she got all these attendants and wonderful food. But the reality is is that the best place in the harem is still in the harem. She is still in a dangerous place. And the fact that she's been given a privileged position in that dangerous place does not take her out of danger. We want we see and we see this so clearly in the very next paragraph that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Her privileged place in the harem does not eliminate Mordecai's fear that something terrible is going to happen to her every single day. It doesn't eliminate her need to hide who she is in order to function in this world. Everything about this right now is bad. Everything about this right now is creepy. Everything about this right now is gross and wrong. And it is not good for us to try and say that it is not. That is Esther right now is in a situation that is continually not safe, and that is damaging to who you are as a human being. So now we get to see the process of the pageant, that before a young woman's turn came in to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king, Anything she wanted was given to her to take from the harem to the king's palace. And and in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgash. And the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. We should be disturbed by this. This is one of the creepiest paragraphs ever written in human language. And I don't think that I'm being hyperbolic when I say that. And it's amazing to us how power corrupts. Because we see that all of this, all of this is this attempt to prop up Xerxes' ego. To feed some weird desire for affirmation and control that Xerxes has. That all of these women have become pawns, have become tools in order to prop up Xerxes. Who because he is the king of 127 provinces from from India to Kush ought to have some sort of confidence on his own, but instead he needs it propped up by, by t- young teenage girls. This is a gross situation. And we see in this this contrast of, of power and weakness in his character. You can have all of the power that this world disposes, and yet inside he is crumbling to pieces and is propped up by this, by this gross pageant and possession of other humans. When the time came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. I've made this mistake, too, that I have framed this as a win for Esther. It is not it is not a win for Esther. Being able to please your jailkeeper does not mean that you have won. Being able to please your possessor does not mean that you have won. It means that you have figured out how to navigate an unsafe and difficult situation. This is still dangerous and bad, and we do not serve scripture or, or serve God's purpose for this story by jumping too quickly to making it good and nice and clean and clear. The reality for Esther and Mordecai is dangerous and creepy and weird and uncomfortable. And if you're reading this situation and if you're like me right about now, you want me to jump to the nice part of the story because it's going to make you more comfortable and ease your tension. But I can't do that because if we're honest with ourselves, this tension, this discomfort, this being in situations where nothing seems right and is going to be right, some of us live there a lot. Some of us are there right now. Some of us have been there and are very familiar with it. We live in places where where bad and and in places and in situations where things are bad and dangerous and creepy and wrong and God at the very best seems preoccupied or at the worst seems absent. That's the reality of our world sometimes. We feel alone and and disregarded and there is no way and the only way for us to, to navigate this world is to somehow manage to please those who are trying to possess us. And we need to acknowledge that that's a reality. The Bible continually tells us that this is part of your experience. And this, this is repeated constantly in the Psalms. The psalmist writes in Psalm 102, "'Hear my prayer, Lord. Let, me cry for help. "'Let my cry for help come to you. "'Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress.'" turn your ear to me when I call, answer me quickly. The only reason that you ask this in a prayer is because God ha- fe- it feels like God has been hiding his face from you. It feels like you've asked God for something and he hasn't paid attention for a very, very long time. You've asked God for something when you're in distress and it seems like he's turned his back on you. That is the reason why the psalmist says it, because it feels like that sometimes. That is a reality that we encounter. When we read the news and it's scary, when our financial situation seems scary, when all of these things seem scary, that is what our lives are like. That is sometimes the path that we are called to walk. But but through this, the psalmist discovers that even though this is what he is experiencing, he or she is experiencing, that it feels like you are gone and you are absent, They have grounded their character and who they are in a truth that is deeper than their circumstances. Even though they feel like this, that their days vanish like smoke and their bones burn like glowing embers, my heart is blighted and withered like grass, I forget to eat my food, in my distress I groan aloud, I am reduced to skin and bones, I'm like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins, I lie awake and have become a bird alone under a roof. They ground themselves in this. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release the condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms de- assemble to worship the Lord. Even though it feels like you're absent, God, I am grounding myself in the fact that your promises are true. that and that I am, Even though everything looks dismaying and scary and creepy and bad right now, my foundation is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness that we are, the, the psalmist is, uh, is saying, I am not going to allow my present circumstances to tell me what my future, rea- my, my eternal realities are that God has told me what my eternal realities are and I'm going to live in that light no matter what is happening here and no matter how uncomfortable it is. And let's be honest, the only way that we come clean with this is when we admit how uncomfortable it is sometimes, how creepy it is sometimes, how how unfair and how trapped we feel sometimes. But don't so don't rush this process because here is maturity and long-term peace. And it seems that maturity and long-term peace only come from enduring periods of feeling like God is absent, that that is his intention for us, that he gives us these this dissatisfaction in order to lead us to maturity. And really, the only consummation of our suffering that we find in this life is when we get to share in the part- in the suffering of another. And I'm going to clarify that a little bit. There have been multiple times in this congregation where I've I've heard somebody come, where someone has come to me and said, we're experiencing something bad, some sort of uncertainty, some sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, whatever it is, some sort of uncertainty, discomfort, health, job, finances, whatever. And there have been so many situations where I've been able to say, this other person went through that exact same thing that you're going through a number of years ago. And then they, this, the, this group of people that has been through that comes to this other person and says, what you are going through right now is awful, but survivable. And God will show up, and we you can trust us because we've experienced that. And that is the gift that God gives to us in the midst of our suffering. I don't say that to diminish anyone's suffering. I do not want to diminish it at all. And... This world often does not make sense. But it is when we participate in each other's suffering, in the grounding of ourselves, in the promises of Jesus now and for eternity, that we begin to experience peace and hope and the ability to share that peace with others, despite what circumstances we may be facing. Let's pray together. God. We don't need to sanitize our circumstances in order to trust you. We don't need to lie to ourselves about the circumstances of our lives in order to trust you. We don't need to ignore those things that are dark and uncomfortable and scary and creepy and weird and wrong in order to trust you. But yet in the midst of all of those things, we can trust you. We can push back against them. We can push Back against the dark. We can can push back against the creepiness. We can stand up and say what is wrong. We can do all of those things because we know that you see them just as clearly or more clearly than we do. You are not ignoring us. And help us to ingrain that in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to build the foundation of our lives in your promises and in your sovereignty, knowing that you are in charge now and for eternity. And whatever our circumstances might be right now, they are not indicative of your power and of your grace and of your peace and of your love. Help us to assure ourselves when it is dark and when it is lonely that your kingdom is coming and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And help us to share that with others. And we ask this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.